Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is Brad Arkin. Uh, I believe you were the first ever Chief Security Officer at Adobe uh, when you took that role on in April of 2013. So if it's you're five years in, this is a good check-in time to see how things are going. Your task with um, uh, protecting Adobe's assets, obviously, but also protecting Adobe's infrastructure. Uh, we're talking about 19,000 plus uh, employees, um, 1 billion plus probably more uh, customers and users of your products. Uh, can you take a look back over the five years uh, since you took on this role and talk briefly about, you know, when you took on the role, what what were your personal expectations of what this job would entail? And over the five years, how it has evolved and, and, and shifted your thinking and priorities? I'm trying to get kind of a big picture look back from you if you were going to yeah, look back sure at the thing. five years since April 2013. Yeah, and, and the thing to remember is I'd already been with Adobe for four or five years. years. Yeah, so I joined in 2008. And so um, as my role had been evolving... Uh, and when I officially, when I originally joined, I was working on um, product security, which back then was the desktop stuff. So Flash Player, Acrobat, Photoshop, um, and all of all of the desktop code. Right, the big cloud and, shift hadn't happened yet. Yeah, exactly. And so then in, uh, I think 2011 is when we um, first really made the big change with um, offering Creative Cloud. Um, and we had acquired Omniture and started the digital marketing cloud, which we call Experience Cloud today. Right. Um, that, that acquisition would, was back in 2009. Is, uh, is that in the same space as Azure and AWS? Are you selling uh, uh, cloud services to third parties? The, mar- they, they, well, the, the precursor to this is the what you used to call marketing cloud. Right, yeah. So we're, we're selling services to our customers, um, but we're not selling uh, services that Azure and AWS sell, like compute and storage. Okay. So the, serv- the services that we sell in the experience cloud are things like like analytics and test and target, A-B testing, things that digital marketers use um, to put together a better you know, retail experience for, for their customers. Right, so that's that didn't experience. come along until 2012, 11? Well, so we acquired Omnishare in 2009, um, and then that business has been growing and growing. And so, um, you know, the marketing cloud and now today the experience cloud, that's something that's, um, that's, that's been there. The creative cloud used to be Uh, creative suite and so we would mail you a physical box with discs inside and you install things like Photoshop on your local computer and that was it and so now with creative cloud you can download all those binaries um, from our servers and then we now have more and more services that we're offering to our creative customers um, and so you have your creative cloud account and you can store your assets on the creative cloud um, and all of that uh, you know Adobe has a big mix of data centers that we own, Colo Space that we're leasing, um, and then we do a lot of uh, third-party cloud computing. And so when we launched Creative Cloud originally, that was all on AWS. Um, and a couple years ago, we made the announcement that Azure is now our preferred cloud provider. Nice. Um, and so, um, so that means I'm living in this multi-cloud world where I've got um, more than one major cloud provider that I'm working with. And then a lot of uh, homegrown stuff as well, and right. so we've got to we've got to make this multi-cloud security experience consistent. You know, even though the technologies are different, and so that's 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 one of the challenges today. But so go, going back to your question about you know what things were like back then and how things are going now, 
Right, uh, and, and and specifically in your own mindset when you when you took on the role. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious because this the 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 whole nature of uh, CISO burnout and uh, um, just uh, tenure is up to what 17 months on average. So you've <laughs> obviously done something right or or wrong. If, if I know, I'm probably listening here, to your right? wife. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, uh, what was yeah, your mindset so, going in, and you know what has the experience been like? Has, has it changed your thinking significantly in ways? Just walk me through. Yeah, and so you know, on day one, I think I was really focused with with the new CSO title on the combined set of portfolio responsibilities. And so, once upon a time, it was desktop code, then it was desktop and servers, but the stuff we do for customers, not back office. But what we decided when we were working on the org structure and defining what this new CSO role would be at Adobe is that you can't create an artificial org chart split and say, we're going to have some IT-based CISO role and then some customer-facing CSO role and pretend that the attackers would only attack one scope or the other. Um, you know, the bad guys don't work that way. And so having an integrated set of defenses that span all the technology in the company is what we decided would make a lot of sense. And so back in 2013, I was really focused on the services we operate for customers and how do we make those services more robust against the types of attacks that we anticipate. Um, and I wasn't thinking as much back then as I do today about these higher level topics that we interact with the board and, and the senior executives at Adobe. Um, so things like enterprise risk management and, you know, there's a lot of things that my stakeholders and the legal team care about a lot, um, which are not always going to originate from a classic third party bad guy who's sitting outside the company, um, you know, trying to like hack accounts or, you know, do lateral movement or, you know, these real narrow technical topics that I'm very comfortable with. And so that, that, that broadening of perspective has happened over time. Um, and then also understanding, you know, more important than anything else is keeping our customers safe and keeping in mind what do they care about. Um, but then I've got tons of other stakeholders. And so there's legal and finance and the audit committee of the board of directors and, you know, what does the CEO prioritize? And um, and then we've got budgets to manage and things like that. And so that that broader scope is something that I've definitely grown into over the years. How is that transition, um, transitioning from being uh, in the technical trenches, uh, running product security, uh, and that, that that includes like on the proactive side, making sure, you know, uh, products are built using uh, uh, some sort of secure uh, SDL type thing. Uh, and then on the reactive side, responding to zero days and vulnerability reports coming in very, very technical, what, what I would argue, you know, interesting and exciting role into yep. this policy thing that just seems to be, uh, you know, this kind of boring risk management, but yeah. incredibly important. How has that transition yes. been for you? And do you, do you, do you find it, it was an easy transition because you had a technical background and, you know, would you recommend bigger companies looking towards, uh, technical folks to take on these policy roles where, you know, in some cases they go directly for people with more policy experience and more of that overarching. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting question. So, you know, I'm hopelessly biased because I am coming from a technical background. And so my, uh, my bias is that the, the, the formal um, technical education background that I've got and the experience I have growing up in the security industry and doing, you know, security consulting and pen tests and things like that, 
um, is that it gives me a level of intuition for how um, you know bad guys are going to operate and also what our capabilities are as defenders. And so if a vendor comes in trying to sell me something, then I'm going to be more attuned. You know, my BS meter is going to be more accurate, I think, and be able to say, you know, the sales pitch sounds good, but that's not actually going to work in practice. Um, and so I, so I think the technical background is really helpful. Um, the reality is that even though I now have a much broader responsibility, which includes things like audit and compliance and lots of policy work and things like that, uh, it, you know, part of being a leader is that I'm not the person doing that work. And so right. I've got to decide, you know, how do I balance my portfolio and how many people are the right people to have on the policy team versus our like in-house pen test team or, um, you know, d- different functions that we're doing within the uh, within the security group here at Adobe. Right. Um, and that, for me, the big the big thing that I'm always pushing in all the meetings I go to is how are the activities that we're discussing right now going to change the outcomes that we desire to influence? And so, is this going to make it harder for the bad guys to attack us? Is this going to give our customers more confidence in working with us? Um, or are we, you know, just kind of spinning our wheels? So, so that's always the question. How can we turn this activity? Because if you aren't careful, anything you do runs the risk of, of just becoming this big time-wasting bureaucratic exercise. Right. And so how do we, how do we steer the ship to make sure that um, we're actually going to influence the outcomes that are important to us? Um, and, and that's something that I try to drive regardless what the topic is, if it's, you know, on the fluffier side or, or something that's, you know, more hard-nosed technical. Right. One of the things I did preparing for this podcast and preparing for this interview was go back and look at, I believe it was a 2013, maybe 2012, I don't remember the date, uh, talk you did at RSA mm-hmm. on, um, you know, just kind of lessons learned, uh, like this this shift to the cloud, how that's going to change risk management thinking uh, around things like authentication, dealing with all these acquisitions coming on board and just trying to manage everything within the portfolio. And I want to dig a little deeper because you mentioned in the, in, in that talk, uh, 2011 was around the time when you started really uh, focusing and paying attention on APTs, re- leveraging O'Day and, and handling this, this time to patch, uh, mm-hmm. time to update. In 2009, it was 10 weeks. In 2011, you set a record for one, I think, one zero day in 48 hours. And on average, you were down to the six-day range. That was a yep. long time ago. Right. And, and things have changed dramatically. We can talk about flashing a little bit because I'm sure you have like 2020, December 31st, 2020, like X marked <laughs> on your chalkboard for the day. You can maybe start breathing easier. Yeah. But um, you obviously have, you guys have moved significantly uh, uh into the cloud, but you still have Flash, you still have Reader, you still have a lot of desktop third-party applications. Has has that um, time to update, uh, time to get bugs triaged, whether you get it, uh, you know, whether you find it yourself, you get it from a third party, you get it from a security uh, uh, partner. Uh, have you seen that that shifting downwards? And I have so many questions, sorry for rambling. Uh, yeah, the, no, no. Know, the last time we talked as well, you... You were admonishing the security industry for um, not making attacker costs higher or actually lowering the cost for attackers. Uh, and again, that might have been 2013, 2014. We're in 18 now. How has uh, has any of that changed for the better? Can you walk me through yeah. what you're seeing? Yeah, so, so I can talk about on the Adobe side when it comes to um, the patch turnaround. And it, and it depends on what we 
what information comes in the door. So if a friendly security researcher shares with us uh, some information about a bug, a security bug that we want to patch, um, then that's something that we try to tuck into the next downstream release, um, which is usually going to be uh, you know, either 30 days or you know, 90 days at the max, um, depending on which product we're talking about. Um, if we get information about a uh, security vulnerability that's being exploited in the wild, so like what I would think of as a, a real zero day, right. uh, then that's a totally different level of urgency. Which you're still and, dealing with fairly regularly. Um, you know, not nearly as regular as we were back in 2009, 2010. So um, I, think, I think our record now is some, something less than 24 hours from when the email hits our inbox to when we ship the update out uh, you know, to a billion plus computers. And on average now, um, I think I think normal for us is going to be in that one, two, three day turnaround. Um, and we start the clock from when the email hits our inbox. And so, um, you know, we we don't necessarily lay eyes on that for a few minutes until after it arrives. And then we've got to triage it, figure out how it works, figure out where the code is that needs to be patched. Um, and and depending on what type the the, the specifics of the bug, sometimes patching it can be more tricky. Than others, and so, um, so the timeframes are definitely still trending down. But I don't know, you know, from ten weeks to fifteen days to forty-eight hours, you know, that was like a huge drop. I don't know that we're going to go from twenty-four hours to fifteen minutes. Um, so I think we're now looking at shaving off minutes here and there. Right. Uh, and so, so that's, that's is it that acceptable number today in your mind? Um. We always strive to do better, but but I think that we're getting we're getting close to where it's it's not going to get much much better than this, um, in terms of the number of hours it takes to respond, and so so then on the proactive side, when we're looking at the attacker cost metrics, um, and and this is something you can't quantify precisely, but I have this imaginary metric of um, for a moderately skilled bad guy who sits down at the keyboard, how long would it take that person to develop a new exploit um, that would succeed in carrying out whatever their objectives are. And as an industry, I think we've made unbelievable progress in this. Um, and this is something I think Dave Vitell has some really great anecdotes where he talks about these days for a real serious squad that's trying to develop some awesome O'Day, um, you're not talking one person for half an hour, you're talking a team of people, you know, maybe six, eight people working for months uh, in order to develop the tool chain they need in order to get that exploit working against the target that they desire to attack. Um, and so as an industry, I think that's phenomenal. Um, and when you look at Adobe products in particular, uh, the work that we're doing is so dependent on the underlying platform it's running on. Um, and so attacking Flash Player on a Chrome OS device is going to be really different than attacking Flash Player on you know, Windows 7 or right, uh, right. You know, some older technology. And so... Um, so that's that's something where uh, I think the cost to develop and deploy a a really well functioning zero day attack continues to go up, and it just depends which stack you're talking about in terms of like what the numbers are. Right, right, and 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 you know browser platforms have added all kinds of mitigation, sandboxing. There's uh, this the barriers are are much higher than it today yep. than it was. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, in the media and uh, in the industry in general, we tend to get excited and 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 intrigued by all day sophisticated attackers, lateral movement, all this you know really 
uh, spectacular stuff that makes for good Kim Zetter headlines. Mm-hmm. However, uh, the, the data actually shows that companies that are dealing with breaches and companies that are getting popped are are um, are making just commonplace mistakes. You you you'll be hacked in four or five ways. It, it'll be a phishing attack. Uh, it'll be a poorly configured cloud configuration. Um, you you were you were slow to patch or you haven't patched properly. It, these like basic security hygiene will go a longer way than spending mm-hmm. tons of money of chasing after the latest anti zero day threat or the anti APT threat. How do you view it? Um, do you view it holistically where you have to spend uh, in both areas or are you, when you're doing your budget allocations and figuring out your priorities, are you prioritizing on on these basic security hygiene things? Um, and I'm, I'm just yeah. curious for your thinking and how you balance that. Yeah, so so we, we spend all our time thinking about um, given our understanding of how we've laid out the chessboard with, with as defenders because we get to um, make the choices about where everything is set up and we understand how we set it up and things are not always perfect and so um, Given everything we know about it. How would an attacker go after our environment? And so would they do a phishing attack against the administrator who has root access or would they go after? You know the admin control panel or you know, whatever it is and and then we try to understand how we can allocate our finite resources to make those outcomes less likely and harder for the bad guys and um, and so for us, a lot of times, it's how can we further improve what we're doing on the hygiene side? Um, how can we uh, make things that are really important, uh, you know, e- even safer? And so I spend a lot of time looking at, you know, the way that our domain admins manage the um, domain controllers. Um, and I spend way more time on that right. than I do Quite rightly. On, you know, you know, like Joe Blow in accounting or Sally and the sales team or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the kind of perfect hygiene we're looking for for certain uh, job functions within the company um, far, far exceed what we'd expect out of, you know, just a regular line of business worker. Um, and so, so there are certain parts of the company where we spend a lot of energy thinking about really high-end attacks um, because the the attractiveness of the target would merit that kind of um, investment by the bad guys. And you and uh, you dealt with your own. I mean, Adobe had yeah, its own yeah. breach uh, tied to what you were calling advanced targeted attackers in the past. Mm-hmm. So you so you know the severity and the importance of that yeah. part of it. Yeah, and having that real world experience is really, um, really helpful because it, it just helps us to refine um, how we're making our uh, you know investment allocation choices. Right, uh, but at the same time, yeah. you can't you can't ignore uh, the the risks that Joe Blow in accounting or Sally in sales bring in when they're contracting third party vendors to you know build a little yep. marketing podcasting website and not going through proper, proper policy channel cha- mm-hmm. challenges and some of that supply chain uh, issues involved. And you also have that because you mentioned uh, in your cloud move, you're you're also co-lowing with uh, third parties. Um, you have that supply chain issue where uh, your 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 entire security posture is dependent on theirs. How, you know, how do you is that something that's that's fixed by just banging people in the head with uh, the need to follow proper policy, or like how do you manage that risk? Yeah, and so when I'm thinking about third party risk, there's there's tons of of different flavors for that, and so you've got. Um, third-party risk where we have a contractual relationship with the third party. And so when we're running our code on 
um, the Azure cloud. Um, you know, we have a contract with Microsoft, we're their customer, and there's great clarity in who who has what security obligations in that environment. And so, you know, Azure's on the hook to make sure that the physical data center is protected against physical attacks. Um, and I have a lot of confidence in the way they're doing that. Right. Um, we are on the hook for uh, the code that we're writing that we're deploying onto their virtual servers. Um, and then that's really clear, and I know how to handle those risks. Right, so there's so a that's, clear SLA that, yeah, that outlines yeah. who's and that, responsible for what. So, so we need to get the SLA right, and we need to make sure that there's there's nothing where we're going to end up pointing fingers at each other. So there's lots of work to do in that kind of relationship. Um, but then that's pretty different from a situation where uh, we're integrating open source third-party code libraries into our stack that we're then deploying. So we're completely responsible for everything that's happening everything, within our even though you're Even though the yeah. code is coming from somewhere else. Exactly. And, and we may not have any kind of contractual relationship um, with some open source project uh, that's got you know an awesome library that we're using. And right. so how you manage the risk in those situations are going to be pretty different um, because there's no lawyers involved. Like It's just up to us to make sure that the way we're managing this component, what we're relying on it to do, is that we're comfortable um, with the risk that we're taking on there. Um, and so, so basically what we seek to understand, um, for the, like any given environment. So we'll, we'll look at it and say, we want this thing to be safe. Um, and then we'll talk about, well, what do we own? What are we responsible for? What do we need to do? What are we relying on for others? And then what's the way someone might attack us? And if the easiest way to attack us would be to compromise some third party open source project, maintain account. Exactly. Exactly. So we need to think ahead. And if the bad thing happens, we can't just say, well, it's out of scope. It's not our problem because it is our problem because it's our code. You know, we're, we're running it and we're taking the full responsibility when it's in our environment. And so we've got to figure out how do you manage those risks. And usually there's things you can do architecturally to say that even if somebody put like a crypto, um, you know, miner into some upstream library that we would have a way to detect and react to that problem. Um, before it became a bigger issue. And right. so, so you, you take things and say, yeah, you know, the risk of this happening is feasible, but not likely. And so I'm not going to, you know, do manual code reviews in advance every single time. Um, but, but if we have sufficient monitoring and instrumentation in the environment, the hope is that you can whether pinpoint the, it, right? Yeah. And so, and, and the thing is, we don't know how the failure will occur. You know, is it going to be an upstream component? Is it going to be you know, sloppy hygiene that led to, you know, some node being compromised, like whatever it is, our desire is that we've got the safety nets in place that we can catch this stuff um, soon enough that we can prevent it from be growing into the bigger headache. Right. Yeah. And that has to be part of your overall risk management yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. strategy and posture. I can't have you on this podcast without mentioning the word flash. And I mentioned 2020 because at the end of yep. 2020, you guys are end of lifeing um, the great Flash player that gave us so many great headlines over the years. Mm-hmm. What happens in 2020? Um, you're you're no longer going to support it. No longer going to ship patches for it. Are you going to ship an uninstaller? Uh, like how how do you how do you how do you yeah. uh, deal with those tardy folks who have not properly prepared? Although you've given them enough time, healthcare. Yeah. There's a bunch well, of really major organizations that rely on Flash in their enterprise organization. Uh, yeah, setup. and that's the you know be, basically the the background behind this whole you know big wind down process is mm-hmm. that for a long time people were saying oh Adobe should end of life Flash Player, um, but there was no way we could have um, you know done a sharp end of life uh, you know pick a date you know twenty six impossible or something. 
Yeah, it's impossible because the install base was so huge and, and it was an active install base. So it's not that people had it installed, but they never used it. You know, it was being oh, used every day by so many machines. And people and view so, it as like something to play games or watch video on. I, I, I saw a Duo, a Duo put out a release maybe a year ago on, um, on flash deployment in the enterprise. And it, it, it was kind of mind numbing to me how many healthcare organizations, hospitals, yep. uh, uh, big organizations still rely on flash, uh, and still struggle with patching and keeping it yeah. updated and all that stuff. So Yeah. Uh, and so what we did is we we were doing a lot of work behind the scenes with our ecosystem partners and so the browser providers and things like that um, to try to uh, do things to help wind down uh, the the reliance on Flash and the prevalence of it. And once we got to a certain point, um, then we could say, okay, now we're ready to announce a public schedule. Um, which is where the 2020 date came from. Um, and so so now the goal is that with the public schedule, um, then the whole ecosystem can understand that this date is coming and then they can take more aggressive action to get ready for it. And so if you're an enterprise and you've got some application that you use for corporate training or you know your HR app is built that relies on Flash in some way, um, then you've got to work with your vendors um, to replatform that and to extricate Flash, um, you know, from the dependency chain, and and all of that in the enterprise environment takes a really long time. And so, right. um, our goal is that this process um, will get uh, as many people as possible off of using uh, that component, um, because the 2020 date is is coming and it's real, and there won't be security updates after that. There won't be any support for it because it'll be an end of life um, piece of code at that point. Um, and so our goal is that people won't have workflows where they still need Flash um, because running the end-of-life software is not a good strategy right. ever. Is that, uh, it, but, but, but what's the plan post-2020? Because I saw an argument recently that I thought made some sense, and I don't know if it would make sense in this, in this uh, respect, uh, that companies end-of-lifing uh, uh, widely deployed software should consider mm-hmm. open-sourcing it so that uh, f- folks can take on the mantle of uh, not necessarily supporting it, but shipping patches when, when it might absolutely be necessary because X number of people are still on, yeah. uh, still running the old thing. And that's why I asked originally if you were going to ship an uninstaller as well, or mm-hmm. if, you'd use, if you'd use your updater to remove it, um, uh, mandatory removal from, from machines. Is that in your thinking, is, or am I just off on a different way? Yeah, like, so, so you know, the, the short answer is we're not sure yet. So we, we don't have the, the last update you know, set in stone and fully planned out. So, so that's something we're going to keep thinking about internally. And we've, we've still got years before that date comes. Um, and when it comes to open sourcing, uh, I don't know the percentage, but a great chunk of flash player today is already open sourced. And so things like the, um, uh, AVM two and the, um, uh, the bytecode interpreters, like all of this stuff, um, is already open source now. And so I'm not sure that there's much left that we can open source that isn't already open sourced. Um, so the idea that we can open source the whole thing is, um, my guess, not something that's feasible. And part of that is because we've got a bunch of stuff that's in the code base, which we may license. It may not be our code directly. And there's patents and things right, like right, right. that involved. And so it's not as straightforward as saying, uh, exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, we can't just push it to GitHub and be done with it. Um, and so, but how, uh, tell me where, where, where you think we'll be in December, 2020, uh, let's say 2021, 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, I so, know you're working with the platform providers, the browser makers, and, and, and your end of life announcement included links about how they are going about doing it, and everyone is hard charging on making sure we're probably prepared for it. Uh, do you mm-hmm. anticipate we'll continue to have issues? Uh, uh, it's all going to depend on what the install base looks like. And so if no one's using it, no attacker is going to attack it because there's no point. Um, Do you but, recommend people tr- start getting off a of flash right now, uninstalling it in your enterprise, uh, g- being prepared and not wait for this uh, no patch day? Well, it's it's like any any software. You know, it's it's supported today, and the um, the characteristics of what support means are well understood. So if something comes in, we'll patch it. We get it out usually in a pretty tight turnaround. Um, and so, but there is that end of life schedule that's public and it's not going to change. So we're not going to get to November, 2020 and then say, Oh, let's push it out two years. Um, like that's definitely not going to happen. Um, and so I know it's probably a question you can't answer or you wouldn't answer, but do you recommend people start removing it from their enterprise or getting prepped now and not wait until that day? Well, to me, it's, it's all about. So, so the specific question you're thinking about from an enterprise perspective, what is the right wind down schedule? Mm-hmm. And so you, so you know what end of life is. And so if somebody had a schedule that was going to um, remove the dependency uh, by December 2019, that's a great schedule. Um, and there's no reason to get off it sooner than that um, if they, you know, when they're looking at the schedule they're working with, that it makes sense to keep it until then. Um, so that that for me... Uh, is fine. Now, the thing is, the idea that you're not going to even think about it till November 2020, that's like that's crazy. a really bad plan. Yeah, yeah, that's a bad plan. It's so yeah, having, you know it's having a be plan end of life, that makes sense. If you know the end of life is coming, getting it out of your mm-hmm. enterprises now and not having to deal with just another monthly patch, uh, patching issue to put on your schedule just makes sense. Uh, waiting for the last minute just... And I yeah, know a lot but, of companies but in each environment, it's, it's always going to depend on um, the environment. And so the, the pain to unwind at an accelerated pace, you know, may be greater, um, you know, than what the maintenance schedule looks like between now and then. So it's the, the specifics are going to be so important for each environment to evaluate, um, like what plan makes sense for them, but everybody should be thinking about it the same way they would if they're running an Oracle database, that's going to be, you know, ending support in the next, you know, 12, 24 months. Um, any of these projects to migrate off of, um, existing technologies are, are things not to be taken lightly in an enterprise environment. Um, right. So for teams to think it through, like that to me makes a lot of sense. And what we're seeing on the browser side is that it's getting from a UI perspective more and more tricky to figure out how to even run the component um, uh, You know, if you come across a site that relies on it. Um, and so what we're hoping is that that's going to encourage the site owners um, to come up with their own migration plans and put those in place um, because the, the UI experience for the user um, is getting more and more friction uh, right. in place. And so, so what we're hoping is that the whole ecosystem um, is going to wind down the usage um, in advance of the end-of-life date because what we don't want is people to be using end-of-life software. That's never a good thing. Okay, I have two, I have two more questions. I hope okay. we have enough time. Um, uh, you guys do not have a formal uh, uh, paid bug bounty program. Um, you you do have a something set up with HackerOne where it, it's not it, it's not actually paying researchers for bug re- bugs reported. Walk me through your thinking as it relates to uh, encouraging uh, folks to 
benevolent folks to look uh, look at the software and and report vulnerabilities this uh, uh, responsibly through a bug bounty mm-hmm. program. And you're thinking as it relates to you know the value of bug bounties and what we you call this crowdsource pen testing versus yep. using traditional pen testing uh, external pen testing partners. Yeah. Why no um, bug bounty program? So we've we've got the the HackerOne portal. So any anyone who wants to get in touch with Adobe to share information about security vulnerabilities, like that's the place to go do it. Do you get a lot of uh, uh, submissions through there? Uh, and I'm uh, curious because I know your your HackerOne um, uh, uh, program doesn't pay. So I'm just curious yep. about uh, motivation. Yeah, and I, it, you know, we, we get a lot compared to a lot of companies. So I don't know if we get a lot compared to others. So so I'm trying to think of absolute numbers. I say we get hundreds, hundreds a quarter. Okay. Um, you know, so it's it's a vibrant vibrant channel. So we're getting, you know, it's not crickets by by no means. You know, every every day we're getting multiple reports that come in, um, and you know we're very happy if people want to spend the time to share information with us. We we act on it, um, and so when it comes to uh, bug bounties and paid bug bounties, um, to me, the question is always, how do we direct um, the energy and, and skills that exist within the bug crowd or bug, bug bounty community um, in a way that's going to deliver the best results for Adobe? Um, and but so you we, had to make a deliberate decision that you were not oh, yeah, going to do it, a traditional, it, what, let me quote unquote, normal bug bounty where you pay yeah. bounties. So we we do a lot of paid bug bounties um, that go to the you know bug bounty community, and we structure these things through companies like HackerOne and BugCrowd. Um, but what we do is we pick the target and we we say you know we want to really shake the tree um, for this particular site or this particular chunk of functionality that we want to exercise, um, and so we'll structure a paid bug bounty program. Um, and then and they're, are they timed? Yeah. So in each vendor has their own way of describing it, but basically for us, it's, it's time bound, um, and scope bound. Right. Um, and kind of like the Microsoft is, approach where they, uh, yeah. Right. And so, and we're doing this for websites, not for, not for you products. Know, desktop products. Right. And so the goal is that, you know, you pick whatever Adobe property you're interested in. And so we say, Hey, this, this thing is due. And so let's, let's go bring, the uh, skills that exist within that bug bounty community and bring that to bear against the site. And it generates great results because you do the typical pen test is two people, two weeks, and they might be good people. They might be having a bad week. Maybe they're hungover or whatever. Um, you just don't know how much creativity you're going to be getting out of those people for a couple of weeks. But when you do the bug bounties, you might get hundreds of people who spend some of them very small amounts of time. Some of them might really make it their focus for a lengthy period of time. Um, and the kind of results that we get out of these bug bounties are very interesting. Um, cause sometimes you get like bread and butter stuff we'd expect from a regular pen test. Um, but a lot of times we get really off the wall, very creative things, um, which, which really get us thinking about, you know, do we have a blind spot here? Is there stuff we can do at the architectural level to, um, you know, make this property more robust in the future. And so, so basically when I think about, you know, so I've got a budget overall and then I've got a certain section of that budget is tagged for um, third party assessment in whatever form that is. So it would be audits, pen tests. Uh, and then, and then I think that spending more of those dollars on bug bounties is going to lead to better results overall. And so, but the way that we like to structure the bug bounties are not to just have a generic, 
you know, report a bug, get 500 bucks, you know, regardless of what you're looking at, because certain things are more important to, to us than others. Right. And so that's why um, we like to do that targeted bug bounties. And so, um, so that the HackerOne portal where anyone can show up to us and report bugs, we're happy to have them. We give them the non-cash kudos or whatever that comes with that. Um, but if you want to earn money doing pen testing for Adobe, um, then we have ways to do that too. Um, but we're going to be focusing the target and the timing and the scoping to make sure that we're exercising the things that we think are most important that need the exercise the most um, because we don't want people to be diffuse and scattered testing a bunch of stuff that's lower priority for us. Right, and you want so to be, you want to be prepped to triage and, and respond appropriately as well because yep. one yep. of the experience I had with bug bounties in my time at Kaspersky was that so many submissions were out of scope even though you clearly defined the scope. and yep. There are legitimate issues you still have to address but you weren't properly prepped for that. And yep. uh, yeah. That was one of the downsides of that. Do you find that, that findings from traditional pen testing or traditional security assessments are of a higher quality and more reliable than uh, relying on the uh, crowdsource pen testing bug bounty uh, yeah it's the the it's all about the triage and so um if you took the raw uh output uh from a very broad you know bug bounty style assessment you know which might have hundreds of people reporting things um, and you're going to get wild inconsistencies in terms of the level of documentation and describing what the problem is. Some things aren't actually problems, but just misunderstandings about site functionality or something. Um, and so the, the raw input is going to be really inconsistent. But if you have a good process to triage that and then bring it into a level of consistency before we send it on to the folks who need to fix the bugs, um, then uh, what I find is that the... Um, it really starts to look like apples to apples. Um, and so the kind of report that you would get from a traditional two people, two weeks pen test can look pretty similar um, in terms of the, the the quality of information contained and the way that it's presented um, to what you can get as the output from one of these time-bound bug bounty pen tests. Last question. Um I, I still can't open a security news uh, website or even mainstream publications today and see uh, and not see news of a new breach. Uh, platform, and I ask this question on every podcast because I'm really fascinated by the answer and, and the way people yep. think about it is breaches are a uh, dime a dozen. Major breaches are dime a dozen. However, at the same time, operating systems, browser platforms, uh, you know, reader and all these uh, uh, widely deployed third-party applications have... Um, you know, all these mitigations built into place, platforms are more secure and more robust. Why are we still dealing with daily breaches at a time when we are celebrating uh, uh, robustness of the security and maturity of, uh, of platforms from a security perspective? What's the, what's the disconnect? Well, so I think, I think it's real that the components are getting much more robust. Um, and the, the, the way that I like to think about this and the, the joke there is if you gave a Windows 95 computing device to a 12-year-old boy and came back a year later, what are the odds that that's still going to have um, good hygiene on that computer? And then you ask the same questions for Windows XP Service Pack 1, Windows 7, Windows 10. Um, and it's they get so much better um, as the code has had a chance to advance. And then you talk about, like, well, what about an iPad? Um, you know, So if I gave an iPad to anybody, 
and came back a year later, I have great confidence that it's going to be intact and as it should be without running any, you know, unintended code or, you know, bad, um, you know, crypto locker or things like that. Right. Um, and so, so I think the components but, 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 are but absolutely. We, but we still have a disaster as it relates to uh, real yeah. world security. So, so, so then what happens is those components, though, are just little tiny building blocks that are brought together and glued together to compose some bigger system. And so when you're looking at the way that these breaches occur, um, and usually it's going to be through, you know, some combination of bad hygiene and, you know, bad luck, you know, the way things were glued together, somebody mm -hmm. forgot something. Um, and so I think the complexity of those systems um, really dramatically exceeds uh, the complexity of operating a single device like an iPad um, securely over a period of time. Um, and so as you're moving things around and you have problems with authentication and collaboration between multiple people and different teams and different companies, um, that's where the complexity really skyrockets. And that's where we're seeing the failures occur. It's due to the complexity of all of those components having to interact together perfectly um, and not having enough robust um, you know, failure detection to swoop in and fix things when, um, when the system starts to drift from its intended configuration. Um, and I think it's because things are moving still so fast um, in terms of the technology. So cloud computing is brand new in the scheme of things, and people are doing amazing things with it. But if you're going really fast, the risk is you'll, you'll miss something. Or you know, the difference between being able to get something to work and really understanding how to use it in a smart way is tremendous. And so there's a lot of people out there who are just barely able to get something functional, um, and they don't realize that they're running risky. Um, right, and so so then they get bitten eventually, and and that is not that 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 is not going to change very soon. I mean, you, you yeah, you're and saying... and then also the, I think the the set of adversaries who have various motivations to drive them to find these failures or you know potential failure modes um, is only increasing, and so you've got um, you know people who are like researchers who want to get in the news for finding something embarrassing, or bad guys who see a way to. Uh, make money off of one of these errors. Right, and there are these nation the whole, states and these yeah, exactly. actors, right? Yeah, and then you've got the whole sort of espionage sort of thing. Um, and so each of those different uh, types of threat actors have their own motivations, but they're out there looking and hunting for you know any of these little slip-ups. Um, but there's a lot of motivation to uh, do better in this place. And so I think we're going to start to see um, these systems that are composed of lots of different building blocks um, the, the glue is only going to get better over time. Um, and so the more motivated people are to prevent it from happening, the more attention goes to that space. And then hopefully over time we'll see the same kind of uh, increased robustness against attack um, for the composed systems that we see for the building blocks that succeeded over the past 10 years. Um, so I'm optimistic overall. Um, but but there's definitely tons of work to do. Last question, promise. Last question. Yeah, uh, okay. I would argue, and, and I, I'm sure it's a, a pretty easy argument to make that sandboxing and uh, the the implementation of sandboxing technologies, protected mode, whatever you call it, has been the most exciting innovation in in security in the last ten years. Um, it's changed the game, raised the bar for attackers, increased costs, blah blah. Looking forward in this new cloud environment, is there a, a new approach, a new concept, a new bit of technology coming down the pike on the security side that intrigues you, that gets you excited? Is there some sort of content containerization on uh, in the cloud? What what can we look forward to, like the next phase post sandboxing? Because sandboxing is kind of old and boring now. 
Yeah, and, and to me, sandboxing is really um, an endpoint technology. And right. So when you're talking about on the server side, you know, you mentioned containers. Containers are are so exciting, um, and and it's this funny thing because there's a lot of environments that have been having a lot of fun with containers for years and years. Um, but they didn't even have that people, name yet. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they didn't even know how cool it was. Um, but but now. Um, it's something that's really branching out in the mainstream, and is so that the one you're you're excited about, like I am. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about containers, and what it does for me is that it takes you know so you take an environment that um, has not yet been containerized, and so uh, the entire every aspect of the virtual machine has to get done right. So you know how do you lock down all the open ports, and how do you configure it, and what is user space and everything else. Um, and there's all these different ways that you can screw that up or just have a blind spot and forget to do something the right way. And um, and then if you move that application functionality into a container, um, now the developer gets to really focus on um, working on the functionality that they're doing to make the service um, meet its expectations. Um, but then all of the other stuff around it um, is something that we can then lock down on the operational side um, and have a lot more confidence that it's going to work as intended. Um, and so for me, it, it basically it clarifies, um, and we were talking about the SLAs between the code writer right, and right. third-party hosting provider. Um, I think it's that same sort of thing where the code writer just has to write the functionality, and it really um, forces them to narrow down and say, like, like, my expectation is I get to own what's inside this container, and I'm going to work on just that. Um, and then we can put a lot of rules in place so that um, everything that happens outside the container is more consistent, more standardized, and there's fewer moving pieces and fewer things that can go wrong. Um, and so we're we're in full flight right now where, um, yeah, I, I don't know percentage-wise how close we are to being done, but the goal is that sometime soon every workload within Adobe is going to be running inside containers. Um, and it makes things so much easier because in the old days, we could go to an environment and say, hey, you've got to be compliant with SOC 2 for security and availability, and you've got to be compliant with ISO 27001, and it's going to take you nine months of work to no, change. No, it's going to be automatic. But now we say, put your stuff in a container, put the container on the conveyor belt that goes into this environment, and then you get it all for free. And so what we're doing is now when we acquire a company, in, in the old days we would have said, hey, you've got a lot of work to do to remediate all your compliance gaps. And today we go to them and say, you can do a year of work on the compliance remediation side, or you can containerize your environment, which is going to be fun work anyway, and then you get all this stuff for free. And we won't tell you anything on the security side. Right. And so developers love to hear that. Could it's be a game changer. Better. Yeah, we're really excited about that. Um, and it's funny, though, because it's not really all that new, but, um, but, but it's at the point now where we can really roll it out very broadly. Um, so that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm excited about. All right, I just looked at my list and I have like 37 more questions for you. So one day we'll have to do this again. One day we'll have to do this again. Thank you very much, Brad. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan.